the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. This evening, we are continuing our series looking at the Old Testament prophet of Malachi. Under the overall series title of Wholehearted, last Sunday in her introduction to the series, Megan commented on the fact that the book of Malachi is oft neglected. It's very seldom read or studied. And whilst I'm sure there are several reasons why that may be the case, I think the main reason is because of its content. The prophecy of Malachi delivers an uncomfortable and surprisingly contemporary message for God's people, which the prophet delivers in an uncompromising style. There is a lot of straight talking in Malachi, and despite its brevity, barely three pages long, it packs quite a punch. It's clear from reading the prophecy that Malachi has a difficult task to perform. We learn from the section of the text we have in front of us this evening that worship of God had become purely ritualistic and mechanical. But it's not just the practice of worship that Malachi needs to address, since, as we discover, practice is merely the outworking of attitude. What's visible on the surface doesn't reveal the full extent of the problem. It's merely the tip of the iceberg. The book of Malachi speaks into a particular moment of widespread religious disillusionment and discontentment among God's people. And whilst prophets like Haggai and Zechariah had dealt quite effectively with the evidence of disobedience amongst God's people, by the time we get to Malachi, something more damaging has taken root. Now we see evidence of deep-seated discouragement and apathy. This time, when the people are challenged about their attitude, there's no acknowledgement of wrongdoing on their part. The people see nothing amiss with the way that they are living or in the way that they worship God. In fact, we get more than a hint that even if it could be proved that there was something wrong, then it was God's fault and not theirs. Religious cynicism had taken firm hold of the people. Fueling the people's discontent was the knowledge that prophets such as Haggai and Zechariah had spoken of a glorious future for the returning exiles. But if that was the case, say the people, when where is the evidence of it? God had promised through Zechariah, for instance, that the rebuilt city of Jerusalem would be the focal point for the entire world. Listen to what the prophet has to say. Zechariah chapter 8 verses 20 and 22. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Many peoples and inhabitants of many cities will yet come. And the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord and to entreat him. But, say the people, where are all of these people flocking to Jerusalem? Haggai similarly had been told by God to tell Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, that I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overrun royal thrones and scatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. So why was it that the land of Judah remained an economic and political backwater, still under the jurisdiction of a Persian governor? The people's view of God appears to have been that having promised a lot, he delivered very little. And one result of this cynicism, as we saw last week, was that they doubted God's love. And as we'll see in a couple of Sundays' time, they also doubted God's justice. Put simply, things hadn't gone their way. And because of that, the people decided the best course of action was simply to ignore God, or at best to pay him lip service. 
Now, of course, it's almost inevitably true that each one of us will, at some point in our time, encounter discouragement and disappointment in our Christian lives. For the people in Malachi's day, covenant and commitment had been replaced by carelessness and complacency. Not long before Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Gospel writer John, one of Jesus' closest friends, allows us to eavesdrop onto some of Jesus' final words to his disciples. At the beginning of chapter 14, Jesus has encouraged his disciples to not only be prepared for discouragement, but also to look beyond it. John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Jesus knew that his disciples were about to encounter discouragement. They were about to be thrown into despair and disbelief. The events of the next few days would surely lead the disciples to conclude that the whole mission of God was imploding. Jesus' command was to trust. In other words, look, don't let your hearts be ruled by what you see. Let them be ruled by what I've promised you. Okay then, let's read, shall we? Let's read from Malachi chapter 1. We're going to read from verse 6 to verse 14. This is what we discover. A son honours his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honour due to me? If I am a master, where is the respect due to me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying, the Lord's temple is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Last Sunday, in the earlier section of Malachi chapter 1, we thought about God's unfailing love, and we noticed that the Hebrew word used for love is ahav. It's a word that the Bible uses to describe God's promise-keeping love, a quality of love that reveals itself through relationship. Part of the Hebrew construction of the word ahav equates to our English verb to give. God's motivation to act is his love. One of the earliest uses of the word ahav in relation to God comes in Deuteronomy chapter 7. There we read these words. 
but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. But whereas in the first five verses of the chapter, the people of God had forgotten what God had done for them through his covenantal love, both in rescuing them from slavery in Egypt and from exile in Babylon. Now in the next section, we learn that the people have forgotten who God is, his true nature as the Lord Almighty. The right response to God's ahav love, says Malachi, is worship. The word honour in verse 6 is a Hebrew word often translated as glory, which comes from a root verb meaning heavy or weighty. Yet the practice of both the priests and the people revealed contempt rather than honour. The people's response to God's question, where is the respect due to me, is tantamount to being passive-aggressive. The people say, how have we shown contempt for your name? How have we defiled you? The answer, of course, as the passage reveals, is obvious. Both the priests and the people had consistently colluded. They'd put themselves first and relegated God to second place. It had become common practice to offer defiled food on the altar. And that defilement is both literal and figurative. Literally, they defiled the act of worship by offering lame and diseased animals for sacrifice when they knew full well that God required the best of the flock. And figuratively, they defiled the attitude of worship by revealing through their actions the true nature of their contempt for God in their hearts. King David, uh, in one of the Psalms, Psalm 51, writes this in response to God's unfailing love. He says, Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, O God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your table. Now going back to our passage, I think we can spot two big principles in play. Firstly, in response to who he is, God deserves our worship. And then secondly, in response to what he has done, God deserves our sacrifice. But we need to recognise, as David did, that there is an order to the second principle. Since God wants us to give ourselves first, and then our offering in whatever form that may take, whether it be our time or our money or our abilities. During our recent morning series, The Cost of Living, we considered how to orientate our lives so that we might live out effectively the good news of the gospel. At the beginning of Romans 12, we read, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Now, it's worth noting that within the section that we have read, Malachi very pointedly emphasises the name of God. Eight times within the space of only nine verses, Malachi chooses to refer to God as the Lord Almighty. 
Now it's a name that in total Malachi will use 24 times within his prophecy, a degree of inclusion that surely is deliberate, since repetition in scripture often denotes important emphasis. The name the Lord Almighty, as translated in our Bibles, is the name Al Shaddai in Hebrew. It's a name that means God the All-Powerful One. The identity of God as Almighty serves to establish the sense of awe and wonder that we have towards him and the realisation that he is God above all things without limitation. We first read this name for God in the story of Abraham found in Genesis chapter 17. There God speaks to the patriarch and he says, I am God Almighty, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. And this emphasis on God as the all-powerful one is then used with biting irony to expose the people's self-serving and self-obsessed agenda. This is what God says. The second part of verse 8 of Malachi chapter 1. When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? And of course the answer is no. The people would never even consider offering, offering leftovers to the Persian governor whose rule they oppose. And yet they routinely offer leftovers to El Shaddai, the Lord Almighty. Such offerings, coming from a perverse sense of duty and not from a genuine discipleship, are so far removed from what God requires from his people that it would be better not offering anything at all. Verse 10. Oh, that one of you would just shut the doors of the temple so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. And the reason why that would be better is because the people of God are meant to be a light to the nations. In another of the Psalms, the writer reminds the people that their purpose for honouring God and living in obedience to him is not simply so that they would receive his blessing, but in a far greater sense, it was so that the world could encounter God through them. The psalmist says, be, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And we too are part of that work. We are, as the song reminds us, a city on a hill. And whether gathered or scattered, we are called to declare the praises of him who called us. In the translation that we regularly use here, the TNIV, the, the general tense used in verse 11 is a present continuous one, which tells us that what is being described is both happening now and will continue to happen into the future. This is what it says, verse 11. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. The people in Malachi's day responded to God's call to discipleship with just three words in verse 13. Ensnared by cynicism, ensnared by apathy, the people reply, What a burden! Now the antidote to such disillusionment and disregard for the worship of God is, I think, a straightforward one. Malachi says that the people of his day needed to see God afresh to be reminded that he is El Shaddai, the Lord Almighty, and to understand 
that they need to give their whole lives to him, including their attitudes and their actions. That's the way that God brings about transformation through spirit-filled lives of obedience, through you and I, if we allow God the space to work in and through us. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, the German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer coined the phrase cheap grace. And there is a sense, I think, in which what we have been thinking about this evening from the prophecy of Malachi resonates with that idea. The people in Malachi's day had cheapened everything relating to God. They had reduced worship to mere ritual and total obedience to mere lip service. They had completely lost sight of any sense of awe and wonder in their relationship with God. Bonhoeffer describes in his book Cheap Grace, he says, Cheap Grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. Notice what is emphasised in Bonhoeffer's definition and what is de-emphasised. The emphasis is on the benefits of being God's chosen people without considering the costs involved. The people in Malachi's day warned, wanted everything their own way, but that attitude isn't something we find enshrined in the manifesto of God's kingdom. In God's economy, love is expressed through willing sacrifice and obedience. Love is giving. In Matthew chapter 16, we read these words, and we're going to finish with these this evening. Then God told his disciples, Jesus rather, told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul?